when we talk about firm foundation, we talk about the government and how it was built and the, the foundations it was built on, uh, it was the Bible. It brings us to where we're at today. We're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 7. We're going to go through verses 1 through 17. It's going to be a great word. I prepared it just for you guys, and I'm excited to share it with you, quite honestly. The title of the message today is The House Builder. And as we get into this, before we get into it, I just want to, just want to pray real quick. We're going to ask the Lord, uh, just, just bow your heads and pray with me. Lord, I pray, Lord, that you will just go before us. Go before me, Lord. Provide the words to my lips to, to speak to your people. I am your vessel only to fulfill your will, Lord. And, and, and I praise you, Lord. I love you. Enlarge our territory as a church. Increase our influence for your kingdom. May it be for your glory, for your renown, God. I pray, Lord, that you will open our eyes, soften our hearts to receive this word today for over ourselves and our families, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to start with verses 1 through 3. Chapter 7, 2 Samuel. Now it came about when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies. Now the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within tent curtains. Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your mind, for the Lord is with you. What does this bring us to? The Lord has given him rest. I'm going I'm to walk through, I'm going to explain a couple of these, these key phrases. The Lord has given him rest from his enemies all around. What is that saying? This leads us to believe that actually the, the events of 2 Samuel chapter 7 happened after the wars of conquest described in what we're going to get into the next chapter, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 8. And this section is placed before the war accounts in the text to show its greater importance. I dwell in a house of cedar. Cedar wood, actually at this time, cedar was especially valued. It was of great value. This meant that David actually lived in an expensive, beautiful home. I mean, he was a king after all, so why would he live anything else? He's going to have the best of the best. And when he remembered that the ark of God dwells inside the tent curtains, the contrast actually comes and it, it bothers him. He's like, wait, the ark of God here is, is so much greater than I, but it's, it, it lives in a tent. It lives in a tent, and I'm here in this great home. And he was troubled by this, and he thought that if, you know, he thought that he lived in a nicer house than the Ark of the Covenant, and which, in fact, I mean, he realistically did when you're looking at it from a worldly view. And the house of cedar, in, in a commentary, says it was a remarkable, or remarkable contrast to the shelter of Adullam's cave. We go back to 1 Samuel for that. We see well, how he rests and, and finds refuge in Adullam's cave. And look at the contrast. Where, where has God brought him? He was literally in a cave seeking refuge and, and, and rest and then comes out. And now he's in this great cedar home. And without saying the specific words, Nathan or David told Nathan that he wanted to build a temple to replace the tabernacle. And just to put it in our perspective, make it maybe easier to understand what's the difference between temple and tabernacle. We can look at it in, in modern terms now, a temple being a physical church. This is a way you can look at it, a physical building, a church. A tabernacle would be something that is portable. So you see there's many churches around actually that do it now. There's church on the move. There's uh, others even in our area that literally just go into a place and they they put up stuff the day before and then they'll have church and then they'll take it down. I mean, that's basically what it is. It's a temporary or permanent. So temples, permanent, uh, tabernacle is temporary. So he wants to build a temple, a more permanent place 
for the ark of God instead of him being in the tabernacle, which is, uh, has been more temporary. And when, when Israel was in the wilderness more than 400 years before this, God commanded Moses to build a tent of meeting according to a specific pattern. And we see this in Exodus 25 as well. Let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. According to all that I'm going to show you as the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furniture, just so you shall construct it. See, he, God never asked for a permanent building to replace the tent, but now David actually wanted to do this and he wanted to do it out of honor. It wasn't necessarily wrong or, or, or bad intentions by any mean, but the, the tents of meeting that we know about, the, the tabernacle was perfectly suited to Israel in the wilderness because they constantly moved. And now that Israel was securely in the land and the Ark of the Covenant was in Jerusalem, David thought it would be better and more appropriate to build a temple to replace this tabernacle. And back in the text, go, go do all that is in your heart for the Lord with you. This is Nathan's response, basically. Nathan said this because it seemed good, it seemed reasonable. He, he, you know, what could actually be wrong with David wanting to, to build a temple? He says that all that is in your heart... This shows that David's heart was filled with this question. What can I do for God? He was so filled with gratitude and concern for God's glory that he wanted to do something special for God. I actually had said something earlier this week on one of my social medias talking about the difference. And this is something that really, honestly, Holy Spirit convicted me of personally, is that the difference between doing something for God and with God. And I... uh, just out of complete transparency, I was convicted in, in a heavy way, and it's kind of been on, been on my mind and heart over just the last week. And then I come, sat down to write this text, and I was like, oh, goodness, here we are, like another, another thing. Thanks, thanks, Holy Spirit, appreciate it. Uh, but I was, I was incredibly grateful because what I realized, and you guys may be able to relate, oftentimes we, we go about doing something and we say, I'm doing it for God. I'm doing it for God. I'm doing it for God. And that's great. It sounds great. But are you doing it with God? Are you doing it with God? And it, it convicted my heart. And I was like, oh, shoot. I had to take a seat. Like, I had to take a step back, take a seat, and just, just really just meditate on that. Allow the Lord to, to, to talk me through that, really. It's like, what areas am I doing for God? And what areas of my life am I doing with God? And that, that was a conviction on my heart. And obviously, it was obviously uh, David. He's asking, that, what can I do for God? Instead of maybe, what can I do with God? What can we do together? What can he bring me into? How can I, you know, increase my influence really just to increase uh, the kingdom ultimately at this time? We're going to continue on in uh, chapter 7 with verses four, uh, 4 through 7. But in the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, go and say to my servant David, thus says the Lord, are you the one who should build me a house to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent, even in a tabernacle. Wherever I have gone with all the sons of Israel, did I speak a word with one of the tribes of Israel, which I commanded to my shepherd, my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? That night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Nathan's response to David was presumptuous that we had already seen. And it was presumptuous. And then he comes and then he actually gives a word to the Lord. He answered according to human judgment and common sense. But before, 
uh, he heard the word of the Lord. And another documentary I was reading as preparing for this, uh, it says, it is of the utmost importance that we should ever test our desires, even the highest and holiest of them, by his will. Work, excellence in itself, should never be undertaken, save at the express command of God. The passing of time will always vindicate the wisdom of the divine will. Would you build a house for me to dwell in? God seemed honored and, and surprised, really, that David even offered to build him a house. It was as if God had said to David, you, you want to build me a house? Like, no one ever even offered to do that. No one offered that before. And I never even commanded anybody to do it. So why are you wanting to build me a house? And David wanted to do more than God commanded. And this is a wonderful place to be in our relationship God or in our relationship with God, to, to want to do more than just what he is asking. Go above and beyond. Most of us are maybe stuck in the, the, the pattern of thinking, you know, how little can I do and still praise the Lord? How much do I have to do just to get by? You know, I'm going I'm to I'm stay on this line, and, and, and I'll come over here, I'll touch this, and, and then I'll get back in line, and I'll come over here, I'll touch this. Like, how little do we have to do and still be able to praise the Lord? And we may be stuck in that pattern of thinking that we never really actually want to do more than God commands. And that may be somebody here in this room today. And it's not a, it's, it's not a, a way of shaming you or condemning you in any regard. Charles Spurgeon says, Though the Lord refused to David the realization of his wish, he did it in a most gracious manner. He did not put the idea away from him in anger or disdain, as though David has cherished an unworthy desire. But he honored his servant even in the non-acceptance of his offer. David, now at this point, David had learned that God didn't want him to build the temple. But David didn't want to respond by doing nothing. And according to 1 Chronicles 29, verses 2 through 9, I don't have it on the screen for you, but if you want to go look at it, it's 1 Chronicles 29, verses 2 through 9. David gathered all the materials for building the temple so that Solomon could build a glorious house for God. And we'll get more into Solomon a little bit later down the road, but we see that there is still preparation taking place, even though it may not be now, David still, he's like, I still want to do this, and so I'm going to gather all the things. I'm going to gather it all together, and Solomon will take care of it. The same documentary from earlier said, if you cannot have what you hoped, do not sit down in despair and allow the energies of your life to run to waste, but arise and gird yourself to help others to achieve. If you may not build, you may gather materials for him that shall if you may not go down the mine, you can hold the ropes. Basically, what's, getting, what's going on here is that maybe David was denied this portion, but he still acted. He, he still had a part to play. And that goes in our life today. We may get denied for something that maybe we want to do for God or, 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 or those around us and serving or giving, but maybe God says, no, no, not you. But you can still play a part. There's still a part that you can play. There's preparation that goes a long way for it. 
We continue on verses 8 and 9. Says, now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the names of the great men who are on the earth. He's he's just reminding him, where where did you come from? I took you from the pasture. I've taken you from the pasture and I've made you a, a great king. He took him from the pasture to the throne. And he can do the same in your life today. If you're willing, if you're able, if you're willing to to allow God to use you, he can take you from whatever pasture you may be in and he can place you on the throne of where he wants you to be. God protected David from all his enemies. We've learned that through the book of Samuel thus far, that there's so many enemies along the way, yet God protected them all the more. And he's made David's name great in all the earth. In verse 10, we continue on. I will say, I will also appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, that they may live in their own place, not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them anymore as formerly, even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. God promised David that under his reign, he would establish a permanent and secure Israel. God promised this first because he knew that David, being a godly shepherd, taking care of his people, taking care of his flock, was first concerned about the welfare of his people. God promised David that he would build him him a house in the sense of establishing a dynasty for the house of David one that would last forever, one that, that was an enduring legacy for, for David long after his death when it comes. See, David wanted to build God a temple. God said, thank you, David, but no thanks. Let me build you a house instead. This was, this was ultimately a, a far greater promise than David's offer to God because David's dynasty would last longer and be more glorious than the temple that David wanted to build. We talk about legacy, saying it lasts longer. Well, look, the the temple he wanted to build may not even, even be around today. But yet here we are. We're still talking about David. We're still talking about his dynasty. We're still talking about his name and the greatness that God established him under. So this just goes to show, hey, God knows what he's doing, y'all. We don't need to be in control all the time. It may not make sense, but it's what we need to do. And we need to fall under the will of the Lord and trust that he is in control and that he will take care of us. He will provide all that we need. God honored what David gave him. Even though he only gave it to God in his sincere intention, there are some things in our life that that ultimately we want to give God but are prevented from giving. And in these cases, God recognizes and he receives the intention as the gift. God said, no. He said, no. Simple no. When David offered, he said, no, I'm good. Because David, ultimately, he was a man of war. He was a man of war, and God wanted a man of peace to build his temple, which is what we'll see further on down the road. In uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 22, 
It says, but the word of the Lord came to me saying, you have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name because you have shed so much blood on the earth before me. Behold, a son will be born to you who shall be a man of rest and I will give him rest from all his enemies on every side for his name shall be Solomon and I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name and he shall build or he shall be my son and I will be his father and I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. So we see now, he told him no because David was a, a man of war. He was a great man of war, but he was a man of war. God wanted the temple to be that of peace. So he had, as he's gonna establish it under a man of peace, a man of rest, who is gonna be David's son, Solomon. And the explanation to David that we just read about, this actually came years afterward. And we can honestly probably conclude that for many years, David did not know the exact reason why God didn't want him to build the temple. He was like, I still don't understand this. Five years down the road, I don't know what's going on. I just wanted to build him a temple. God didn't want me to. And he's probably frustrated, maybe confused, maybe angry uh, at, at certain points of his life. Because he, after all, he is human, you know, that, that there is flesh that gets in the way of that. But now, years after, he sees this and he realizes. It would have wounded David needlessly to, to have been told this at the time. And meanwhile, David possessed his soul and patience and said to himself, God has a reason. I cannot understand it, but it is well. The last verses here today. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, for my name and I will establish a throne of his kingdom forever. It will be a father to him and I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me when he commits iniquity. I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. In this, God specifically promised a heredity monarchy for the house of David. It was important for God to repeat this, pro this promise specifically because there's never yet been a king succeeded by his son in Israel. This was a great promise that David made, or that God made to David had only a future fulfillment. It wasn't a present, but a future fulfillment. David would only benefit in his day from the promise through faith. If David had a what's in it for me right now attitude, that mentality, the promise would have meant absolutely nothing to him. Charles Spurgeon says this, the joy which filled David's bosom was a spiritual one because he knew that Jesus would come of his race and an everlasting kingdom would be set up in his person and in him should the Gentiles trust. Though David would not build a temple for God, David's descendant would. The family of David did rule over Israel, all of Israel, for more than four centuries and was eventually removed because of evil, added upon evil, evil upon evil, evil upon evil, and it, and, and it became removed. And yet, out of the stump of Jesse, God raised up a new branch that will reign forever and ever. And we see this in Isaiah. 
Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruits. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. This descendant of David will enjoy a special relationship with God. If he sins, God will not reject him. Instead, he will correct him. He will discipline him without rejecting him. And God promised David that the reign of his dynasty would last forever. And each of these great promises was partially fulfilled in Solomon, David's son and successor to the throne. Solomon ruled on David's throne. And God's mercies never departed from Solomon, even though he sinned. The same goes for us. God's, God's uh, mercies never depart from us, even though we sin. We, 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 we took communion, and that's just the reminder. That's a reminder for us that, like, even though we sin, you know, when, when sin happens and then shame and condemnation falls after, it is not of Christ. That is of the enemy. He is trying to, he's trying to distract you. He doesn't want you to recognize that you have the full mercy of God at your disposal. You have it already. You do not have to go do something to receive it. That is what Jesus was for. You have, you, there's no works that you can do to receive and be more susceptible or, or able to receive the grace and forgiveness of Jesus. You don't, you don't have to do anything like that. Okay, so just be reminded of that this morning. The prophets foretold a greater fulfillment of these promises. And we're going to go through, we're going we're to run through these real quick. In Jeremiah 23, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. And this is his name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteousness. In Isaiah chapter 9, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders and on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with the justice and righteousness. From then on, and forevermore. And last one, I believe here, is Luke 1, verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. That kingdom talked about here in the Old Testament. People say, yeah, get out of the Old Testament, get in the New Testament. No, because we see now, even in the Old Testament, that kingdom will reign forever. We see in the Old Testament talking about Jesus, prophesying Jesus will come. It will come from this line. We see it all the more. You don't find just Jesus in the New Testament. You find him in the Old Testament as well. And that's just a reminder for you that, you know, Old Testament, there are some, some chapters that are, or some books that may be hard to read, but they are just as important. If they weren't important, they wouldn't be there. God's promise of a house for David is completely fulfilled. It was partially fulfilled with Solomon, but it is completely fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus does not reign, or Jesus does reign and will reign on David's throne forever. The Father's mercies never departed from Jesus, even when he was, even when he was made sin for us. Jesus is building the Father, a, a magnificent house. See this in Hebrews. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, but just so much as the builder of the house 
has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things, which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house. Whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. In the sense that we are God's temple, and we see this, we're at in First First uh, Peter. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You are a holy priesthood. You are being built up as a spiritual house. We talk about talk about our bodies are a temple. Well, our bodies are a temple. Our bodies are a temple for spirits reign, to, to reside, to live in. Okay? So you are living stones. And the church is God's new house. What is the church? It's not just the building, y'all. This isn't just his house. We are the church. The people, the body of Christ, we are the church. So we are God's new house. And as we think about what God wants us to take away from this passage, I think that it's important to understand something about the cultural background of it, specific, specifically of, of the themes. And of these themes, and the kingship, and temple building, and the ancient Near East during David's time, and well before David's time, honestly, a, a king who had been blessed by his God would often embark on a major building project and he would erect a temple or a statue of some sort, generally a temple, in order to uh, not only honor his God, but also to share the glory, the, the, the testimony, the, the story uh, of, of, it, of their God. Uh, and really to secure further blessings for the city of which it is established. But Yahweh, the God of Israel, is not like the false gods that we see of the Sumerians or the Assyrians or the Egyptians. And even though David does not appear motivated by desire to get something from God, God turns the common temple building pattern of the day on its head. And he demonstrates that his blessings are ultimately all about grace. God wants to make abundantly clear that it isn't about what David can do for God. It's about how much God has done, is doing, and will do for David. And as the Apostle Paul would later write in Ephesians, to the praise of his glorious grace. And we see that David, who, who wanted to be the house builder, would, could never be tempted to believe he did something to earn God's amazing favor. And even his son Solomon, who would be a house builder, had to point to God's promise instead of his own initiative. God wanted to make it abundantly clear that he is, in every way, at all times, the house builder. It is, it is a good thing to want to give to God. It is a great thing to want to give to God, to, to bless God, to, to love God, to give praise to God. But you can never outgive God. I can never outbless God. You can never outlove God. What he has done, is doing, and will do for you and I should always drive us away 
for the temptations to boast in our religion, or in our religious or spiritual efforts and draw us to humility and draw us to gratefulness and, and draw us to worship in light of his amazing promises. But there's more to this than simply the fact that God of David is the God we worship as well. Some might be tempted to believe that this is simply a promise to one family related to old crowns, old thrones, and, and, and long destroyed kingdoms. And who, who has time today anyways to worry about old politics when it's hard enough to keep up with the new politics? But 2 Samuel 7, as we read, is much more than an interesting but isolated promise to an ancient king. It is a, ultimately, it's a reminder of, of Christmas. I know it's, it's, it's July now, guys. We're getting close, and I'm a Christmas fanatic. But I didn't purposely put this in here. It is a reminder of Chris, Christmas. And when we read in Isaiah 9 and, and Luke chapter 1, we, we listened to both the prophet's hope and the gospel's fulfillments. The fullness of God's word to David was realized in the fullness of Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus was not simply another king in a perpetual line of covenant kings. Jesus was the destination. Jesus was where the promise was headed. There are no kings after Jesus because death cannot end the reign of Jesus Christ and the king who conquered death. And his reign, his rule has extended, is extending, and will extend beyond any long-forgotten borders. Jesus is Lord of all. How does this affect you? How can it affect you? Well, remember that God's blessing, God's blessings on God's king always flow down to God's people. When you come to this king, when you come to Jesus, he gives you, like David, grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Jesus wants you to know the house builder. He wants you to enjoy to be blessed by this covenant God. And what does it mean that God is the house builder? What does that exactly mean? It means that God is the one who gives promises of favor forever even though it is the last thing that we deserve, even though we may not deserve it. There's three simple things to take away this morning. If you have not received the blessings of God's King, reach out to Jesus with faith this morning. He died to open wide the covenant to everyone who comes in faith. Number two, if we have trusted in Christ as our only hope, Rejoice in the promised grace that was given, is given, and will be given to you forever. And the third thing, to guard your heart against ever allowing what you have done or doing or want to do for God to draw you into a false sense of pride. As I mentioned earlier, this was actually what I said in my post is that after a lot of burnout, identity issues, striving and proving that we may begin to realize that we love the idea of being used by God more than we like being with God. 
It's easy to move straight, move straight to prioritizing what I could do for God instead of prioritizing being with God. And there is true freedom found in Christ Jesus. And as followers of Jesus, we receive that freedom of living a life not just for him, but with him. 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5 here today says, And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. This isn't to say that we shouldn't live a life for God by any regards. This is to say that we need to check our hearts and check our priorities. When we put our desire of what we can do for God above what we can do with God, we're saying that we don't need him to fulfill his will. We're literally looking God in the face. As he looked David in his face and said, no, don't build me a temple. We're looking right back at him. We're saying, no, God, I don't need you. I can do this. I can handle this. This is something small. But the thing is, he wants us to do things with him, big or small. It does not matter. He wants us to do it with him. And we need him to fulfill his will. After all, he knows his will. And this is completely counterintuitive because to fulfill his will for our lives, we have to do it with him. So let me encourage you today. Don't get ahead of God. Cling to his word. Stay humble, stay grateful, and savor his promises that we've seen in the text, that we see in our lives, the promises that have been spoken over you. If you were encouraged by today's talk, be sure to rate us, share with a friend, and hit subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you stream your podcasts. Our mission is simple. Come to life, connect to grow, find your purpose, make a difference. Thanks for listening to the Life Church Podcast.